So Ezekiel 2, to 3, 15. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say, or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and read what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll's eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to, not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you, because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and unhardened as they are. I will make your fraud like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived in Tel Aviv near the Kibar River, and there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To another, to other, to the other, sorry, an aroma that brings life. 
and who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God properly. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those that can God. If you're a Christian, I wonder how you're feeling tonight about being a Christian. I don't just mean this second, but in general, how do you feel about being a Christian? I guess for some of us, there's sometimes that feeling that there's nothing better in the world. I wouldn't swap this life for anybody else. To know that I'm forgiven through Jesus, that I have the hope of eternal life, of resurrection, and spending eternity with the Creator of the universe. There's, there's nothing better than that. But I suspect for many of us, even if you've got that, there's a growing unease. I'm feeling more like a misfit in this world that I think I should feel at home in, as our culture drifts further and further away from something that might look a little bit like Christianity, at least on the outside. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. We've gone from being tolerated to not tolerated for our views, for our lifestyle. People are trying to shut us down and keep us out from speaking up. And I think when I feel like that, I'm tempted to keep my head down. Just let the bullets fly overhead. I'm safe. But if I do speak up, if we speak up and talk about Jesus, I know it's the best news going. But why are people so apathetic? Why don't they want to hear? Or even worse, antipathy towards what I say. I've had friends say to me, Tim, you're a nice guy. Why do you want to force your religion down my throat? We speak up about Jesus, it's often like that, especially if we speak up about judgment. At reading from 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he realises as he speaks that he sort of creates a stench. He can't go anywhere without people responding to him one way or the other. To some, he's the aroma of life, and that's terrific, but to many, many people, he says, I'm the stench of death. And just imagine that for a minute. Imagine every time you walked into a room, half the people, or three quarters, held their hands to their noses and walked out and said, that stinks in here. Well, that's what Paul actually felt like much of the time. And I wouldn't be surprised if you feel like that occasionally. But it's not just the unbelieving world, I think, that responds to Christians like that. Even the most Christians themselves. I've just spent a week in Zimbabwe. Um, and I was discussing with a group of pastors what it's like for them. And they said to me, if I say I'm a prophet, I can make you rich, I can heal you of any disease, the crowds will come, the Christian crowds will come. But if I tell them about Jesus who rescues them from sin, no one wants to come in. That's Christians responding, scorned. No wonder you might feel like keeping your head down. Well, Ezekiel, going back two and a half thousand years, He's a priest of the Lord God, but he's got no priesthood at the moment because he's in exile, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. He's one of the exiles in Babylon. The year? 593 BC. You remember it well? No, I don't either. <laughs> Babylon is the superpower of the day. Israel, God's chosen people, uh, have been told by God that if they're faithful and loyal to him, he'll bless them. If they're disloyal, if they disobey him and stray from him, he'll put them under a curse. And the curse was exile. In about 1000 BC, the nation of Israel had split into two. The northern uh, ten tribes sort of carried on for a little while, but they strayed far from the Lord God. And God sent Assyria, 722. The northern kingdom was wiped out permanently. But the south continued, rescued by God from Assyrians. But now Babylon has hit the sea. And in 598 BC, five years before this happens, 
uh, the Babylonians overrun Jerusalem. And the king, Jehoiachin, king, Daniel, you might know of, Ezekiel, and the cream of the, the whole society was deported back to Babylon. Ezekiel's one of them. And he's called to be a prophet to Israel, particularly to the exiles, those he's sharing life with in Babylon, far from Jerusalem. This wasn't the bulk of the population, this was the Palestine, but the community now near the Kibar River, near Babylon, the city. Down, but they think not out, bent to the might of Babylon. But Jerusalem at this stage stood, uh, still stood. The temple was still there. It was still a king there. Right now, is still on? I'll keep shouting. Okay. There was still a king in Jerusalem. And they had hope that maybe God would still come through for them. Surely God would fix up what was wrong. Surely God would restore them. But God sends his prophet, Ezekiel, to be his spokesperson. To be able to say to the people, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Imagine that. Imagine having the confidence that when you spoke, you were saying the exact words of God. It's hard to realise, isn't it? When the budget's coming up in a couple of weeks, isn't it? Some of us are speculating about what's going to be in the budget. But imagine if you'd actually sat down with Scott Morrison and you'd read the budget papers. You could say, thus says Scott Morrison. You would know what was in the budget. Well, that's the confidence that Ezekiel was able to speak with. If someone likes what he's going to say, he can assure them it's true. If someone doesn't like what he's going to say, he can say, well, don't blame me. I'm just a messenger. Take it up with God if you don't like the message. His message, though, won't be a pleasant message. It won't be light. He's told in chapter 2, verse 10, or he says actually, that the scroll with the message on were written words of both sides, all of it full with words of lament and mourning and woe. Not comfort and hope. Not, uh, not something that is going to come good, but judgment of God. And so with this sense of being called to be a prophet, there's a sense of deep responsibility. Ezekiel's not free to change the message and pass on as God's word. No, if he doesn't like it, he's still got to speak it. If others don't like it, he's still got to speak it. Well, how's it going to go to speak this word of woe and judgment? Well, he's told upfront by God it's not going to work. It's a hopeless task. In verse 4 of chapter 2, I'm sending you to an obstinate and stubborn people a rebellious people who are just like their ancestors before them. In, in verse 7, he says he must speak to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. And if they're rebellious, do you think they will listen? No. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, he's told that the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. God is as straight with Ezekiel as he wants Ezekiel to be with Israel. The problem is... The nation is rebellious. And the word he uses here had that sense of a refusal to give loyalty to the king. It, it, it's to become an outlaw. It's, it's a mutiny. That's what it is, this rebellion. And over and over again in this book, God refers to Israel as that rebellious nation, that rebellious people. It's not like the nickname God gives Israel. Rebellious. Rebellious. You know, if you go to a quiz night, you often ask to, you know, to get a group name for your table. Well, God gives them a group name. It's Rebels. I know there is a, a, a super rugby team that goes by that name, and there, there is a shopping chain that goes by that name, but that's sort of 
playing with it. It's romanticized rebellion. Rebellion itself is terrible. It's evil. That's what IS is. Rebellion. Israel are rebels against Yahweh, the true and living God. The God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt and gave them everything they've got. Gave them a homeland. But they're rebellious. And because they're rebellious, they won't listen to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told the problem isn't that it's sort of cross-cultural. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, You're not being said to a people of obscure speech or strange language. You, know, you speak that language. You, you know each other. You understand each other. It's to the people of Israel I'm sending you. They understand you perfectly. Because the message can get lost in translation, can't it? The cultural issues, the language issues mean we might be misunderstood and you've got to work hard to translate. But that's not the problem here. The problem is that Israel is rebellious. And he calls them hard-faced. You can imagine the English country. You know what a hard face looks like. The eyes squint a bit, the jaw is set, and you know that there's no movement. They will not listen. Well, that is what Israel are like. And he says to Ezekiel, they won't listen to you because they're not listening to me. That's the problem. Don't take it personally. That's a pretty tough gift, don't you reckon? So imagine being, I don't know, in the job of designing a bridge, and up front they tell you, we're never going to build it. Or being asked to go and teach a class, but being told before you start teaching, they won't listen. Or go and play for the Dockers, but being told beforehand, you won't win. <laughs> but it's actually worse than that. It's not just that they won't listen, they will oppose you. He's told that it'll be like pushing through thorns and briars. It's like being among scorpions. You know what it's like to push through thorns and briars? Have you ever done it? They just cling to you. They stop you at every step. They will oppose you and make it painful to keep speaking. But keep doing it. That is a tough gig. And you can almost imagine or feel Ezekiel's heart sick. Just feeling with dread at being given such a commission, such a job. And God says to him, don't fear Ezekiel. Don't be afraid. Don't let that dread overwhelm you. Speak. But God does more than that. He doesn't just give him the possible task. He equips him to do the task. He does it in four different ways. The first way is the vision that he gave him in the first chapter. I wasn't here last week, but if you were here, you looked at the first chapter where Ezekiel sees what he calls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. It's mainly seeing, actually, the entourage of God, the wheels and the creatures and the mobile throne. It's, a, it's the glory of God where the things that surround God are so glorious, you can't imagine how glorious God is. It's the vision of a king ruling the four corners of the universe, even over Babylon, a long, long way from Jerusalem, with its own armies and gods. With eyes that see everything. His scrutiny understands that there's nothing that goes beyond his attention. And so he's able to judge. There's no hiding from his God. And Ezekiel needs to know that that's who God is. Deeply aware of God's glory and majesty and godliness. More in awe of God than he is of people. Us too, I think. Because what happens when God shrinks? What happens when God becomes merely an appendage, a, 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 something that you do on the weekends? Well, as God shrinks, people get bigger, don't they? And we become afraid of them. They're more scary. But when God expands, when we see God as he really is, people get less scary. In 2 Corinthians 5, 
Paul says, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade people. What Jesus says in Matthew 28, before he sends his disciples out, all authority on earth has been given to me. It's that you understand who God really is that you can do this sort of task. Secondly, he's sent by God, by God. And that comes through and through this section. Chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet. I'll speak to you. Verse 3. Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites. Chapter 3, verse 4. He said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words. Chapter 2, verse 7. You must speak my words to them. What will propel him forward to open his mouth when he doesn't want to open it? His sleep sense that God has sent him as an ambassador, as an emissary of the living God. But he doesn't go and just speak on his own authority, as if he's anybody that somebody should take notice of. No, he's sent by God. But what did Jesus say? Having said, all authority in heaven and on earth is been given to me. He says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority is given to Jesus. As we go to do that, as I chat to my neighbour, as I pray for my friends, Jesus has sent me. I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not doing it for my sake. I'm sent by Jesus himself. God equips him too by this experience he has of eating the scroll. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says to him, Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And he looks and he saw a hand stretched out to me with a scroll in it. And the hand starts to unroll the scroll, which is written on both sides with these words of woe and mourning and lament. And then he says to me, Son of man, not just look at it, not just read it, but eat it. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. It's picture language, isn't it? But you get the idea. Ezekiel is not just to go and speak words that don't matter to him. He's to taste and inwardly digest these words from God. He's to internalise them himself. He's, he's to take them to heart. He's to listen to them himself before he speaks. He's to believe them and not be rebellious like those who won't listen. And when he eats them in verse 3, they tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. Strange, isn't it? Words of woe, sweet as honey. Why is that? I take it's because he recognises the privilege. The words themselves might not be very pleasant, but the privilege of speaking to the living God is sweet as honey. You can't think. There's nothing more valuable to do in the world than speak the words of the living God. But there's another side to this experience. In chapter 3, verse 15, when he comes to the exiles who live near the Kibar River, when he gets there and he's in the midst of them, is he so full of words he's just going to speak up? No. He's silent for seven days. Deeply distressed. There's the two sides to this eating the words. There's the sweet side and there's the sour side. There's the pleasant side and the very distressing side. Because he's with the people the message is about. He's going to speak to them of their destructions. And you can't speak words like that as cold facts. But with tears and pain, with love and compassion, that's the only way you can speak such words. Fortunately, God prepares him by making him as hard and stubborn as they are. 
chapter 3, verse 7. He says, The people of Israel are not willing to listen to you, because they're not willing to listen to me. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I'll make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than feet. Don't be afraid of them or terrified of them, though they are a rebellious people. So if they're going to be hard, Ezekiel, I'm going to make you just as hard. If they're hard-faced, I'm going to make you hard-headed, as stubborn and as obstinate as they This is going to be an exercise in temper. Like, if they believed you, it would be easy, wouldn't it? But they won't believe you. So Ezekiel, I'm going to help you to tough it out. By my spirit, I'll make you stand so you can keep speaking. Don't stop. Don't soften the message. Because if you do either, they'll think that, well, they provide it. They'll think that God has changed his mind. No, I'll make you hard so you keep speaking. Well, if you've followed so far, as well as feeling a bit of dread, maybe, and sympathy for Ezekiel, the question almost certainly must rise in your mind. Why? Why did Ezekiel such a useless job? But if you told me to go and dig a hole in the wall with my fingernails, well, that's sort of like the job Ezekiel's given. It's not going to work. Why would you bother trying? Why would God give him this job? Well, the passage gives us two answers to that. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 5. Whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people, that is, they're not going to listen, they will know that a prophet has been among you. Why well, send Ezekiel to do a useless, hopeless job so they'll know that God has sent a prophet? It's sort of strange, isn't it? I'll send you as a prophet so they know that they're a prophet. You'd expect God to say, well, I'll send a prophet so they'll hear and repent, or I'll send a prophet so they've got hope and encouragement. But he's to be a prophet so they know there's been a prophet. He's to stubbornly persist so God's message can't be ignored. He may be opposed. He may be scoffed at, but it just won't go away because Ezekiel will keep speaking. The people won't be able to say, well, we didn't know. If he just said it once, and then they didn't hear any more, well, I presume they'll think it wasn't very important. Christian friends, do you hear this? If we stop speaking God's truth, if we stop speaking even about the judgment of God, they understandably will say, oh, it mustn't matter very much. Not really a big deal, is it? If we say, well, they're not listening to me, so I better just let it go and not say anything more, that's what they're going to think, isn't it? Some of you may know uh, Penn and Teller, the magicians. Uh, Penn Gillette, who's one of the Penn and Teller, um, is a, an avowed atheist. One time in an interview, he said this I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize. That is, evangelise, tell them about Jesus. If you believe there is a heaven or hell, or that people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this, because it would be a bit socially awkward, well, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That's pretty strong logic, isn't it? From someone who hates us. Who thinks we're wrong? If we don't proselytise him, he'll lose all respect for us. Because if we actually believe it, how can we not say something? Why? So that people will know that God has spoken. 
Secondly, we see just after this passage an explanation of what's happened. In chapter 3, verse 16, the story continues, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. See, what he's been commissioned to do is be a prophet who is a watchman. Now what does a watchman do? Well, a watchman is sent out to, to, to keep their eyes open, to get the binoculars out, send the radar up, whatever it is, so you can warn people about the dangers to come. But that's a very strange thing to do in this situation, isn't it? I mean, who appoints a watchman? Well, the only people who appoint a watchman are the city who's afraid of being attacked, isn't it? Well, who appoints the watchman here? Is it Israel putting a watchman out just in case God comes to attack them? No, it's God, the one who's going to attack them. Their enemy who's coming to judge them. It's God who sets the watchman. That is crazy, isn't it? Tomorrow is Antec Day. Tomorrow we celebrate and remember the first Antec Day and other things since. On the first Antec Day, Australia, I presume it's sort of this time, the day before Antec Day, Australian troops were preparing to storm the beaches and the hills in Anzac Cove. And let me ask you, do you think they sent a watchman ahead of them to warn the Turks they were coming? It's not. That's the craziest thing to do. You'd never do that. But that's what God is doing. God is sending a watchman to warn the people that he is coming. What kind of enemy does that? Only one who takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. Only one who loves them despite their rebellion. Only one who speaks of judgment, not as abandonment, as if there's no hope and no future, but only when there's hope beyond judgment. This book starts very depressing. In the next couple of weeks, as we look at chapters 4 to 24, I presume, it's all dark. It's all judgment. But it's actually a book about hope. If we need hope, you can't live without hope. There's a story of a boy who was admitted to the children's hospital, diagnosed with terminal cancer. And his spirits went down and down. It seemed like the longer he stayed there, the more he lost the will to live. Um, like all children's hospital, this one had a teacher appointed whose job was to go around and give children the lessons they were missing at school. The teacher was unaware of the diagnosis and she went uh, and found the boy, found out what year he was in at school and gave him a lesson on maths. A couple of days later, one of the nurses grabbed the teacher and said, what on earth did you do with that boy? She was feeling a little uh, insecure. She, she started to apologise and say, sorry if I've done anything wrong. She, and I said, no, no, no. Ever since your visit, his spirits have lifted. I went and asked the boy about it, and he said this. He said, you don't teach maths to a dying boy. He suddenly had hope, and that allowed him to keep living. He, he can't live without hope. You don't send a prophet to a nation that's just going to die. But there is such a thing as false hope. And our whole advertising industry is built on manufacturing false hope, isn't it? If you buy this product, your life will suddenly be all that you dream it's going to be. If you drive this car, you'll be jumping for joy. It's all manufactured hope and it doesn't deliver. Well, Ezekiel is sent by God to dash false hopes. 
Hopes in the temple. Hopes of a new life in Babylon that will be all they hope to my birth. Why? Is it because God wants them to despair? Well, sort of yes, actually. Sort of yes. Because he wants them to lose hope in false hopes. In hopes that won't deliver. He wants to clear the ground so they hope in God. See, while they're clinging to their false hopes, they won't, they can't hope in God and what he will do. But will God deliver? Is there really hope beyond judgment? Yes. He said a watchman. There must be hope. A God who does that will deliver. And there's the existence of Ezekiel. He gives hope as that watchman, as a prophet in Israel. God is still speaking. There's something beyond exile. And there is. 600 years after Ezekiel, a messenger from God trod the roads of Palestine. A prophet, a true prophet of the true and living God. But Jesus didn't say, thus says the Lord, these are the words of the sovereign Lord. He said, I say. He was God himself, God the Son, speaking the word of God. He calmed storms, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, so that they would know that God is speaking. So we would know that God was speaking. His I say to you was substantiated by his action. And he brought a message saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The exile is over. God is stepping in, in me, to bring hope to a lost and hopeless world. Not by bypassing judgment, but by bearing it himself. We're told he set his face, hard as flint, to go to Jerusalem, to the place he would die, determined to go to the cross, to take the judgment of God that I deserve on himself, and to rise again as the living Lord. Jesus gives us substantial hope, hope of life and immortality, a hope that the advertisers can never give you. But he didn't do it by suppressing the reality of judgment. To those who stubbornly clung to rebellion, he said, woe to you, woe to you. To those who put their hope in wealth, he said, you fools. To those who trusted in their own righteousness, he warned of condemnation. But to rebels who put their hope in him, he said, today you'll be in paradise with me. He said, to those who are weary and, and struggling, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. He said, in my father's house are many mansions, sorry, many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come back to take you. He said to his servants, come and share your master's joy. If I can ask you, have you heard that message? God has spoken to you in Jesus. There has been a prophet in this world speaking to you. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe your friends have been telling you a little while about Jesus. I want you to know that they long that you hear this message. Because they believe it's the most important message you can ever hear. And if God is speaking to you, please don't be stubborn. Please don't be hard-faced and rebellious like Israelites. When they say to you, I hate to break this to you, but you're under the judgment of God. I know that's unpleasant, yes. They don't say it because they hate you. They say it because they love you. And God says it to you because he loves you. So please, realise the trouble you're in. All is not worth, despite our false hopes. Now, Jesus means to dash your false hopes in empty promises. 
So I will hope in him. Because he can deliver. Listen to your Christian friends, please. Because they love you. If you are a Christian, if you believe this message already, can I encourage you not to give in to fear and discouragement? Don't give in to that pressure and temptation. Just keep your head down. We have the Word of God. It includes some distressing stuff, stuff people don't want to hear. And even the best stuff, many people don't want to hear. We're not Ezekiel. I'm not pretending that you are or I am. But we all have opportunities to speak up, don't we? In every situation, we can be the aroma. Yes, to some it might be of death, but to others, well, it might be of life. But if we stop speaking, if we just shut up, people write, people understandably will say, well, they mustn't really believe it. Can't matter that much if they won't speak up about it. I don't need to worry. 